Good morning. Good to be back here with you today. We uh, enjoyed our time away in North Carolina in the mountains and uh, the weather is a bit cooler. I won't tell you how cool it was. It would just make you jealous. Um, but it was nice and uh, nice to be back here and be with all of you today. I'm so grateful to Steve for filling in last Sunday and Ryan from Wednesday night. It uh, really is a blessing uh, to preach for a congregation that has such capable and willing men who will uh, step in when asked to do so. And uh, that's always the case here, and it's, it's uh, really a great blessing and great privilege, and I appreciate both those guys very much. It's good to be back here. We've been talking about Isaiah 53 for the last few Sundays, and we're concluding that today. And it, it occurs to me that it's, it's hard for a Christian to read or hear read Isaiah 53 without being moved by it. It's difficult for us to read the description of our Savior, spoken 800 years in advance, and how he would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, someone who was pierced for our transgressions, who was crushed because of our iniquities. We went astray, but God laid our iniquities on him, and he took it, Isaiah says, without opening his mouth until finally his life was cut off out of the land of the living. It's a beautiful text, and it's a moving text, and it gets right to the heart of the message of the cross. There's also something disturbing about it. Not only the fact that Jesus had to die for us, not only that he suffered the innocent for the guilty, but it's what's said in verse 10. And I want you to look at that with me. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's a little hard for us to get our minds around, isn't it? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. The King James translation doesn't help much. It says it pleased the Lord to crush him. The New American Standard Bible is even, I think, more misleading when it says the Lord was pleased to crush him. It makes it sound as if there was some kind of pleasure when we hear the word pleased. It makes us think that God got some kind of pleasure out of the death of his son, that the sacrifice of his son somehow did something for God, somehow was a pleasing thing to God. And what a wrong conclusion that would be. And other scriptures make that very clear to us. And yet the text does say it was God's will. It was God's will to crush him. Why was it God's will to crush his only son? One answer to that is, is because it was the only way that the sins of all humanity could be erased. It was the only way that the collective sinfulness of mankind could be adequately dealt with. Nothing less could possibly have sufficed. Our salvation cost that much. God didn't want to sacrifice his son, but he did want to save us. And so the only way to do that was for the gift of his son because of our sinfulness and our offense against his holiness. But there's another reason why it was God's will. And that is because the Father, like Jesus, was looking beyond the event itself. 
He was looking beyond the suffering. He was looking beyond the price that was paid on the cross to the victory that would be accomplished there. A couple of Sundays ago, we mentioned Hebrews 12 and verse 2. This says, Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame. He looked past all of that, and he saw what he was going to accomplish by that, and the joy that that would bring to him, and the victory that, that would await him. And Isaiah 53 speaks of that victory just as surely as it speaks of his suffering. And we can't leave our study of Isaiah 53 without talking about that, the victory of the servant. That's what all these servant poems in Isaiah, all four of them are about, is the servant of the Lord and how he would redeem Israel, how he would bring them back to God through his suffering. But also he would win a great victory. There is, first of all, the victory of his resurrection. Have you ever wondered when you read 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul uh, says that I, I delivered you the things of first importance, that, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and found yourself wondering, where does the Old Testament say that Jesus would be raised from the dead? You certainly don't find the word resurrection anywhere in Isaiah 53. And yet I would suggest to you that Isaiah 53 is a clear prediction of the resurrection of Jesus. It's a clear prediction that he would come forth from the grave. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. It says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. In other words, after he has died for the sins of the world, he will see his offspring. He couldn't see anything unless he rose to life again after death. And we're told in verse 8 clearly that he would die. We know that he did die. And yet, yet verse 10 says he will see his offspring. And then look also at verse, uh, the latter part of verse 10. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is not about defeat. This is about victory. This isn't about losing the battle. This is about winning. This isn't about being crushed and remaining that way. This is about being crushed only to rise again. Look at verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. And in verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. So the prophet Isaiah not only foresaw the suffering and death of his servant, he also saw his rising to new life. And that's exactly what the New Testament tells us happened after Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Now, Isaiah doesn't go into this, but the New Testament does. It says that you and I are invited to share in the resurrection life with Jesus. We are invited into the life of the suffering servant. We are invited to share in the victory. He wins it for us, and we're able to take part in it. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. That's an accomplished fact if you're a Christian. You're already God's child. 
You belong to him, John says. But then he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. Oh, there's a lot we don't know about eternity, isn't there? We're so curious about it. We wonder about it. We talk about it sometimes. What will it be like? What we will be like has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we'll be like him. That, to me, is one of the most amazing thoughts in Scripture, that God would let a sinner like me, God would let a sinner like you see him as he is, and be like him. When a penitent believer is baptized into Jesus, we're baptized into his death and his resurrection. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 6. He says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. There is a transaction that takes place, and, and sadly, sadly, the world doesn't understand it. Sadly, most of the religious world doesn't understand it. Sadly, most of the Christian world doesn't understand it. But there is something that takes place when a believer is immersed into Christ that is almost beyond description. Paul says that we are being baptized into his death, into what we've been reading about in Isaiah 53. But he says also that if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We take on the guarantee of that resurrection. And then that hope that 1 John 3 talked about, of one day seeing him as he is, because we will be like him. That means that you can have that resurrection life now. That means you can have that resurrection life today. If you believe the gospel of Christ and you obey it by being baptized into Jesus, then you can win the victory along with him. You can start enjoying that victory today. You can start enjoying that resurrection life today. You can live in the hope of 1 John 3 and verse 12. That you may not know what it's all about. You may not know what it will all be like. You may not know what you'll look like or all of those other things. But you will know this. You'll be like him. You'll see him as he is. He's won a great victory. And he's ready to share that victory with you. So there's the victory of his resurrection. There's also the victory of his accomplishment. He did what he set out to do when he died on the cross. Look again at the latter part of verse 10. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This is not a failed mission. It's hard for us to understand because we, we sing about the old rugged cross. And we, we find the glory and the crucifixion of Jesus because of what he did there. But, you know, to the people in the time when it happened, he looked like the biggest loser in the world. He looked like the biggest loser in the world. They mocked him about it. 
They spit on him. They made fun of him. Some king you are. He saved others. He can't even save himself. He's really a big deal, isn't he? Looks like he had lost everything. Looks like it was all over. And yet what was really happening there was that his mission was being accomplished. Do you remember what John says that Jesus' last words were? They yielded a loud cry, and he said, it's finished. Some folks read that and say, yeah, they're the end of his life. No. I read it this way, mission accomplished. It's finished. Mission accomplished. He'd done what he came to do. Notice what verse 11 of Isaiah 53 says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. You get that? Out of the anguish of his soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul. As a result of the travail that he's gone through. He shall see and be satisfied. I've never done it, but I've heard people who talk about it, who climb mountains. I used to climb hills, but heard of people who climb mountains. They'll talk about the suffering, the struggling. You know, the oxygen gets thin up there, and you have a hard time breathing, and it looks like it's only about another 100 yards, and it, but it feels like it's about two miles. And you just force yourself to put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other as you take step by step. But then they talk about getting to the summit. And all of a sudden, it was all worth it. Now, when it comes to mountain climbing, personally, I think they're nuts. Okay, no. Uh, but that's what they say. That's what they say. All worth it. All worth all the struggle, all the travail, all the, the suffering, all the pain, whatever it took to get to the top of the mountain once you're there. That's what's being said about Jesus. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He didn't look back on the experience of the cross and say, I don't know if I'd do that again. He didn't look back on it and say, well, it, it didn't quite do what I wanted to do. No, he, he saw it. He still sees it today. He sees Christians today, like you and me, and people all over the world, worshiping him, believing in him, giving their lives for him. He sees and he is satisfied. Mission accomplished. Verse 11, the latter part says, By his knowledge shall my righteous one, the servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He will make many to be accounted righteous because he bears our iniquities. That's exactly what Paul says Jesus accomplished by his death on the cross, because that we are accounted righteous. You know, we are not righteous enough to take away our own sins. We're just not righteous enough to do it. We're expected to live righteous lives. Don't get that wrong. God calls us to righteousness. He calls us to live lives of righteousness. But on our best day, we are not righteous enough to have our sins taken away. But through the suffering of Jesus... And through his blood, we are accounted. We are accounted as righteous. We are, have righteousness accredited to us. That's what Paul says about Abraham in Romans 4, verses 9 to 11. He says, Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham was a, a weak man in a lot of ways. Now, he was strong in some ways, but he was weak in other ways. And yet, because he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says, we who believe in Christ are counted righteous as well. And being accounted as righteousness, that, that's an accounting term. It's an accounting term. It's, it's when you move something from the debit column over into the credit column. In our case, we're moved from the lost column into the saved column. From the hopelessly lost column into the redeemed column. From the hope, from without hope, into the only hope that is the real hope. Because of what Jesus did. Something similar happens in our lives in Christ that happened to Abraham. Romans 8, 31 to 39. We may struggle and suffer now, Paul says, but even death itself cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in this world, nothing in all creation can do that. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 57. Paul says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Think about that. The sting of death is sin. I don't guess death would ever be a good thing. Any way you look at it, but the sting of it is that we die because of sin. And something has to happen to redeem us from our sins so that we do not die without hope. But thanks be to God, Paul says, God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you notice that? He gives us the victory. Jesus won the victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He accomplished what he wanted and what we needed. Out of the anguish of his soul, he does see. Out of the anguish of his soul, he is satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he can say, mission accomplished. It is finished. But then there's also the victory of his exaltation. Verse 12, the last verse of Isaiah 53. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. I think the I there has to be God speaking, don't you? Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, or some translations say with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He describes Jesus as though he were a, a conquering warrior returning from battle. And he divides the spoil with all of us. He, again, he's won the victory and he's sharing it with us. And notice, he wins the victory and he divides the spoil, not in spite of his suffering. We have to understand that. Not in spite of his suffering, but because of it. Because of it. Because of what he endured on the cross. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. But even more, he is now exalted by God the Father. You heard this reading at the beginning of the service today, and I hope you're listening. 
It's one of the most beautiful, powerful passages in the, in the New Testament. But listen to this part of Philippians chapter 2 again, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him because he has emptied himself and taken the form of a servant and endured death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible somebody starts out being humiliated but they end up being exalted? You ever notice how many times that happens? God brings up the lowly and he brings down the haughty. Think about people like Joseph. You remember his story? He's the despised little brother and and his brothers get so sick of him. Some of you will relate to this. His brothers get so sick of him that they decide they're going to kill him one day out in the, out in the field when they're away from their father. And one of the older brothers says, no, let's don't kill him. Let's, let's just throw him down in this pit. We'll tell daddy that an animal killed him. So they threw him down in a pit and along came some Midianite traders and they said, hey, we can get some money out of this. And they sold him. Can you imagine the humiliation of being sold by your own family? Being sold by your own brothers. And so he was taken into Egypt as a slave, as a servant. He ended up in prison there after serving in the, the house of Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And, and he ends up in prison after all of that. Uh, all, all the other things that he's been through. But before the story is over, he is Joseph, the second in command in all of Egypt. He's right up there next to Pharaoh. He is the commanding officer, if you will. He is the chief of the whole thing. He started out a slave, but he ended up at the top. And what about Moses? Remember how Moses was born under threat of death? Pharaoh said all the... Hebrew baby boys are going to be thrown alive into the river, going to be killed. They got to be killed at, at birth. But the Hebrew midwives wouldn't do it. And so when Moses was born, his mother took him and put him in a basket and set him afloat on the river. Just kind of sent him down. Can you imagine doing that with your child? Just sent him on down the river, just left him in the hand of God and see what happens. The basket sinks, it sinks. But if it doesn't, maybe something good will come of it. And you know what happened? He ended up being raised in the house of Pharaoh, but then he, then he killed an Egyptian slave driver and he had to run for his life. Here's a man who was raised in the court of Pharaoh in Egypt and he ends up herding sheep in the land of Midian for 40 years. He was, as we used to say back in Texas, lower than the snake's belly. And so when God appeared to him, he said, I want you to go and be the deliverer of my people. He said, you've got the wrong guy. You took a wrong turn back there somewhere, Lord. You're looking for somebody else. But he becomes the great deliverer. He becomes the great lawgiver. The law of the people of Israel was called the law of Moses. He was humiliated, but then he was exalted. And then there's a man like Jeremiah who was sent to proclaim God's, God's commandment and his coming judgment to the people of Judah. 
And for his trouble, he got thrown into a well. And he got carried off as a captive. He was kidnapped and taken off into Egypt. And yet, no list of the great prophets would be complete without the name of Jeremiah. Humiliated but exalted. Now, why were they so honored? Why is the suffering servant of God so honored? Because in spite of the humiliation they suffered? No, because of it. Because of it. Because they went through it. Because they endured it. And yet there's no way to compare what they went through with the exaltation of Jesus that he now receives and will throughout all eternity. There's no way to compare it. I want you to listen again to what Paul said about Jesus' exaltation that God has given him the name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Think with me for a moment about what that means. It means that sooner or later, whether in this life, or at the judgment. Every person who has ever lived on this earth will confess Jesus Christ. Every person who has ever lived will confess him. Every knee will bow before him at the sound of his name. All the Caesars of Rome, all the Herods of Israel, all the scribes and all the Pharisees, who mocked him and spat on him. All the soldiers who drove the nails into his hands and feet. All the people who stood around and made fun of him as he died on the cross. All the demons of hell. And you and I. We will all bow before his name. If you do it now, you will rejoice when he comes to redeem his own. If you wait till the judgment and you're forced to bow, it'll be too late. It'll be too late. It won't be a confession of how great Christ is, but a confession of how wrong you were not to confess him in this life. So don't wait. Don't take a chance of not turning to Jesus while you can. Confess his name now. Bow before him now. Believe in him now. Be baptized into him now. Live for him now. And you will share the victory that he has won for you. If you're ready to do that today, you can. Just come and tell us while we stand and sing. Lord, I lift.